It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It is Thursday, October 7th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Always glad to have you here along for the ride every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Many ways to listen live, including streaming if you'd like. We recommend our affiliates across the country. Should you miss any of the program any day of the week, we have a podcast. It is free. On demand, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. On today's show, Bill Malugin, our Fox News colleague, he will be here from the border in Texas. He'll have the very latest, some pretty shocking images that he has seen in recent days and disseminated. We'll talk to him about the border crisis. Josh Krasauer will be here breaking down the political moment. We talked about some really rough polling numbers for Democrats and President Biden yesterday. How might that play into the Virginia election, for example? Education front and center will get Josh's take. Also, in the next hour, we will chat with Carol Markowitz, columnist at The New York Post. She is up in arms about this idea that the government needs to intervene more and more when it comes to education and really stand between children and parents. We will get Carol's take on that and her full analysis. In our final hour, Bill Hemmer, our colleague from America's Newsroom, a longtime Fox News anchor, he will be here. And I always look forward to my chats with Bill. I would say that is especially true today because we'll bring you a Fox News alert. Today is the 25th anniversary of Fox News. And this show originates as a proud member an element of Fox News Radio. I'm a Fox News contributor. In fact, I'll be on with Brett Bayer on the panel tonight, Special Report, FNC, and then Kennedy on Fox Business Network in the following hour, the 7 p.m. hour Eastern Time. It's a momentous and big and exciting day in the history of this network, where I've been an on-air contributor for now eight years, which is kind of hard to believe. We will get some reflections and memories from Bill Hemmer. I also have some thoughts about my own career here and my gratitude that's coming up later on the show today another fox news alert as we begin the show in earnest let's bring you stats coronavirus cases all in in the united states since the beginning of the pandemic 44 million multiply that by three or four and that's likely the actual reality the death toll in the united states of or with covid 707,000 916. The Dow is up big today, up 403 points. The Dow currently trading at 34,820. Speaking of COVID, and we give you those stats every day as we have for months on end at this point, I want to revisit a topic that indeed is a hobby horse of mine, you might say, which is requiring masks on children in schools. And the little explanation and spiel that I give every time we talk about this is I would much rather have kids in school than quote unquote virtually learning, which the data has shown is an absolute failure. 
I'd rather them be in school with masks than the alternative. However, the debate over masking and requiring masks on kids, especially young kids in school, to me is a proxy fight over whether or not data and science matter or whether or not safetyism and superstition win the day. And in our media and in many areas of our government, safetyism and superstition continues to pummel science and reason and evidence day in and day out on a number of different topics. In fact, we've got the latest absurdity out of Washington, D.C. We'll get to that a little bit later in the program. But this is, as I say, a proxy fight over whether this stuff actually matters, whether outcomes and data matter more than conventional wisdom and people banding together and saying, we have to do these things because we have to do these things because we have to do these things, right? Sort of just like this tautological feedback loop that dictates the policies that affect millions of people. In fact, in this case, millions of children. So the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, recently tweeted this. Let's be data-driven and follow the science, right? This is what they always say. It's a common refrain. Data-driven. Follow the science. We believe in science. We bleeping love science. Except when they don't actually care about what the science says, which is far too often, as it turns out. Right? So he begins with the platitudes. Let's be data-driven and follow the science when it comes to protecting our students in schools. What does science say about the importance of masking in schools? He goes on to assert that the evidence is clear that masking in schools works at preventing super spreaders and slowing or stopping the spread of COVID. That is the assertion allegedly based on science of President Biden's education secretary. And in that Twitter thread... He offers four studies that ostensibly fortify or prove his point. Here's the problem. One of those four studies was a simulation. It was not actual real-life results. It was a model. It was a simulation. It was a projection. And how often have the models on COVID been terribly wrong over the last year and a half? A lot. More often than not, in a lot of cases, you might say. So we can, I would say, strike a line through that study because it wasn't really a study. It was a simulation. What about the next three? All three of those studies, one was Wisconsin, one was North Carolina, I believe. They did not have a control group. Remember science class back in middle school in experiments where you need a variable group and a control group? to try to prove a hypothesis, there was no control group that could test the proposition of whether or not masking as the factor, the key factor, changed outcomes at all. And yet, despite none of these studies having a control group, they were written up and presented as clear proof that masking in schools works without mentioning for the general public, unless you really dug into the data, that there were a bunch of other mitigation tactics and policies and restrictions in place that could have contributed to this, could have contributed to disparities, for example. 
They did not isolate masking as the factor, as the key variable. There was no control group. So Cardona is citing studies as if they prove something when indeed they do not prove that thing. The senior author of one of those three studies, this was the Wisconsin study, this is via Corey DeAngelis, responded to Secretary Cardona in the Twitter thread, and his tweets are still up. He's still out there pretending like this is the science and that the evidence is clear. Here's what this MD-PhD responded to the secretary. Quote, Secretary Cardona, I was the senior author of this study. Our study is not able to give any information about the role masked played, masks played in the observed low in-school transmission rates. We had no control group, so we don't know if the rate would have been different without masks. That is what the lead senior author of one of these supposedly dispositive studies shot back at the secretary. In North Carolina, the Wall Street Journal wrote about this a number of weeks ago, that the findings of the North Carolina study suggested that, oh, look, the masks are effective. But here's the reality, quote, all schools showed low degrees of transmission for which the report credited the only unstudied pillar, the only unstudied factor, the masking policy. Because it applied everywhere in the state, there was no, say it with me now, control group. There was no control group. Nevertheless, quote, the researchers baselessly touted masks. So they don't actually measure with any scientific rigor the impact of masks as a factor. And then they run around claiming vindication on masking children even though they have no actual proof to isolate that factor and no control group. That would be dishonesty. That is sophistry. That is a very superficial, misleading way to try to claim scientific authority when, in fact, the science doesn't back you up. Now, how often have we said it? There were no masks in schools in a lot of places or very few masks in schools last year. They certainly weren't required in a lot of places. And the kids did not see a bunch of super spreaders break out in places like Florida and elsewhere. We have now told you endlessly about how in the UK they have done away with mask mandates for kids in schools. Gone. Because their data and their science showed that it didn't make a difference. And so they decided their scientific community, their government, The people in charge decided the potential downsides of having kids masked outweighed any possible upside that they couldn't detect in their data, their results. So even during the Delta wave, they did not have kids wearing masks in schools over there, and everything worked out just fine because schools aren't super spreaders because, thank God, kids overwhelmingly are safe from this virus when it comes to serious, severe cases or death. The United Kingdom made that determination. The European Union came to a very similar conclusion where they have dropped mask mandates for kids, especially kids under 12 in multiple countries over in Europe. We've told you this many, many times. And yet when Ron DeSantis down in Florida decided that it would be the state policy 
that schools could not require every student to wear a mask, people lost their minds. DeSantis in Florida said, look, if parents want their kids wearing masks, fine. We're not banning masks. If you want your kid in a mask, wear a mask. If you don't want your kid in a mask, you at least need to have an opt-out available to you as a parent. And this was treated by President Biden on down throughout the media, the whole conventional wisdom, the whole elite crowd in unison condemned this as anti-science, anti-Diluvian, right? Biden might call it Neanderthal thinking, dangerous. Kids were going to suffer. We would see huge outbreaks in schools, chaos, crisis, death, suffering. And we said, well, what about last year? What about the UK? What about the EU? They didn't hear any of it. They didn't care. Ron DeSantis was bad and wrong and against the science because they know that masks work on kids, period, just because. They can't prove it. They just believe it. It's like a religious belief. It's a superstition. All of that is a wind-up to the punchline. It's not a funny punchline, but I have to say it is somewhat satisfying to report this to you. And I tweeted it last night, and it's gone relatively viral. It's gotten a lot of attention. This is via the state of Florida and their statistics from the Departments of Health and Education. In the first full month of school down in Florida, so September, where the wave was still crashing and schools were opening and everyone was saying, my God, what's going to happen? It's going to be an apocalypse in these Florida schools because of Ron DeSantis. And some of the school districts said, well, we're going to defy the governor. We're going to require masks anyway. And the media said, good for you. We're going to cheer you on. You sue that governor, right? We've seen this all play out. Well, now we have a ton of evidence an entire month, the first full month of school, which was supposed to be a disaster, just a cataclysm down in Florida. Just you wait, they said. Look at all the kids who are going to die. Because of this governor and this insane policy. Right. Totally ignoring what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. They don't care about that. Well, here it is. They tracked new pediatric cases and positivity rates. And as it turned out, new pediatric cases. In the state of Florida in the month of September. Between kids aged 5 to 17, so that's the school-age population, they have decreased the new cases by 79% last month in the 54 counties where school districts did not have a masking policy or had opt-outs. So the bad counties saw a 79% decrease in new pediatric cases. In the good pro-science counties, according to these people, which was 13 districts— Same age group, there was a corresponding decrease in new pediatric cases of 77%. 79%, 77%, no statistical difference at all. In fact, by just a hair, the counties without mask mandates outperformed, were better than the districts that did have the mask mandates in Florida over an entire month with schools open. With cases and positivity rates plummeting across the state, including among kids. And when you get into the numbers on positivity rates, again, no statistical difference between the counties with mask mandates and the districts with mask mandates and those without. No difference 
whatsoever. Do the mask mandators have an explanation for this? Do they care to grapple with this actual data and evidence and experience? Lived reality? Or does their superstition run so deep that they will just ignore this and pretend that this is still mass murder or whatever from Ron DeSantis? The data and the evidence should matter. And the data and the evidence in the state of Florida on the question of school masking has spoken yet again. We can just put it out there for you and let the chips fall. On the Guy Benson Show, we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. One more note on this before we move on from the school masking debate and the new data that I shared out of Florida. If you missed the opening segment, please check out the podcast. Check out my piece today at townhall.com. Check my Twitter feed. Really interesting stuff. CBS News ran a national segment that was effectively attacking Florida and Ron DeSantis, and they featured a child with serious health complications, immunocompromised kid, and this kid's family. And they interviewed the mother who was saying, look, school needs to be safe for every kid, and I don't feel safe with my child in a school where everyone isn't required to have masks. Look, I understand if you have a kid with health complications, of course you're going to be very concerned. Your risk assessment will be different. That makes sense. That is logical. You can also send your kid, if you want to, to a school with a mask on. I also don't think that because your family has an extenuating circumstance means that the rules for everyone must align with your demands and what makes you comfortable. You should make the best decision for your kids. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Yeah. But that is not one size fits all. And the data does not suggest that masking kids in schools makes any difference anyway. By the way, everyone interviewed in the story on CBS News was unmasked. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show, and we are joined 
by Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News, based in L.A., but it seems like he's based at the border. He's been there a lot recently doing fantastic reporting from Texas along the Rio Grande. And, Bill, it's good to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get to more serious matters, I do have to ask you a pressing and critical question. Are you aware that you won, according to the people, this was a democratic process, that you won running away the vote on best hair among male correspondents at Fox News Channel? We talked way too much about this on the show. Matt Finn was in the running, and I mean, very formidable. Of course, uh, Peter Ducey and that uh, blonde mane that he has at the White House every day. And yet you left both of those guys in your dust. And I just want to get your reaction here. Oh, man, I was dying. I was in Del Rio when I saw that stuff on Twitter. Somebody tagged me, and I saw the clip of you and Jesse Waters talking about it. And uh, <laughs> Jesse said he was giving the nod to me because my hair performs under challenging circumstances. That's and right. I was, I was dying. I was laughing, man. It was hilarious. But, yeah, I mean, it, it is rough out here with all the wind and the dust and the sweat and whatever the heck else was under that, that bridge in, in Del Rio. But I did see it. It was awesome. And, uh, I, you know what? It's hard to compete with Matt and and, and Peter's hair, so I'll take the W on that for sure. (laughs) Very gracious. A little victory speech or an acceptance speech from Bill Malugin. I wish we had done the split screen when we find, you know, and the award goes to, and just the look of anguish on Matt Finn's face. How can I possibly lose this? But Malugin, it wasn't close. I think you won a majority. So congrats on that in a three-way race. All right, let's uh, get a little bit more serious here. And let's start with a press conference earlier from 10 Republican governors, sort of an alliance of Republican governors, laying out a 10-point plan that they have all come together to support to try to control the border crisis. Clearly, they're trying to put on a united front against what they see as failures from the present federal administration and Joe Biden. What were the broad strokes of what we heard today from these GOP governors? So the main takeaway is what they're demanding from Joe Biden is, number one, they want the wall to be built again. They want Joe Biden to allow the wall to be built. As it stands right now, upwards of $5 million are being wasted every single day for the wall to not be built. American taxpayers are paying up to $5 million a day just to let a bunch of metal bake out in the sun, essentially. Those contracts are signed, the contractors are being paid, but no work is being done. Another thing they want is they want the Remain in Mexico policy reinstated. You'll remember just a few weeks ago, a federal judge ordered that it has to be reinstated. Well, the Biden administration hasn't done that. They haven't reached out to Mexico. There's been no movement on that front. So they're saying that they're violating what that federal judge ruled. They want that to be taken care of. They also want Title 42 to be enforced with everybody. That is the uh, health rule where once somebody's encountered at the border, they get put on a bus and they get taken right back to Mexico because of COVID-19 concerns. Well, the, under the Trump administration, that was being applied to pretty much almost anybody who came across. Under the Biden administration, they're not doing it with family units, teenagers, kids, that sort of a thing. So that's why you see all those crazy images of family units just being mass released into the country, put on buses, and they're getting to fly wherever they want. Um, so that, those are those are kind of a few of the key points. They also are demanding that uh, catch and release be ended, and that's kind of along the same lines. They believe what's enticing all of these migrants to come here to America right now is they know, and this is true because I've talked to a bunch of them over the past several months, they know if they can just get here and step foot on U.S. soil, they will have a very good chance of just being released into the country with an NTA or an NTR, a court date several years down the road because the, there's such a backlog right now and they can disappear into the shadows. And that is what is enticing so many of them to come. 
the governor say you have to end that immediately. You cannot give these migrants the prize before they go through the system. You have to take away the incentive to come here. Uh, They also pointed out that uh, they sent a letter to President Biden 16 days ago asking for a meeting in person on the border. uh, And they say President Biden never responded to them. In the meantime, I want to pick up on on one of the last points that you made. Here's a report from NBC News, and you've already basically confirmed what they're hearing as well. But just for the audience, let's listen together to Cut 9. After the dramatic surge of migrants into Del Rio, Texas last month, the Biden administration deported some to Haiti, but it released the majority, around 13,000, into the U.S. to wait for asylum cases. They're still coming now because of worsening economic conditions in South America, where some had settled, and the belief they might now be allowed to stay in the U.S. They believe they might now be allowed to stay in the U.S., and it's more than might. I mean, it's a very good chance, as you point out, Bill. And this is what we saw in the very early days of the border crisis. In the opening weeks and months of the Biden administration, there were a a bunch of illegal immigrants entering the country, a huge uptick in illegal crossings and you had some journalists go down there even national journalists for a couple days and they were interviewing illegal immigrants who were saying oh yeah we're coming here because biden's going to let us stay some of them chanted his name some of them had biden t-shirts when it comes to del rio and, and this particular area and this particular group of people from haiti they are saying outright we're coming here because we think we can stay i mean th- there's not a mystery right bill they're they're telling us explicitly what the message is that they're receiving based on Biden policies. There's no mystery at all. And look, it's easy to see why they believe that, right? They've got cell phones. They've got TVs. They've been seeing the images on TV of uh, of the feds just releasing busload after busload after busload of people into the public. They've seen all the images of people just being mass released. So honestly, if I was them, I would think the same thing. Really, the only people who are being sent back immediately are single adult men. Um, or single adult women who are not pregnant. But if it's a family group, if it's a couple with a woman who claims she's pregnant, doesn't have to prove it, can just claim it, or they got a kid with them, um, they're going to be released into the country. That's just the Biden administration policy. And the reason why we see so many of those single adult males running is because they know if they're caught, they're going to get Title 42 and sent back. The problem is a lot of them get away because Border Patrol is just so overwhelmed right now. You have all these family units coming across. That sucks up Border Patrol resources. They have to bring agents in to do all that paperwork. And then the actual agents who are out on the front line patrolling, they get yanked off the front lines to help out with all that patrol. So just to put in perspective for you, when that Del Rio situation happened, basically every agent in Del Rio sector got called under that bridge because they had to process it and get them out of there as fast as possible because it was such an optics problem. Well, what happened when all those agents were down there? You know what happened? More than 220 miles of the border in that sector were left completely unpatrolled. Who knows how many drugs came spilling it? There are going to be people who died in the United States in random states, Iowa, Kentucky, all across the country, who died of fentanyl overdoses because of drugs that came through during that open window. That's just a fact. Because our resources and our personnel, who, by the way, are getting attacked baselessly with these whipping smears from the White House, they all had to go to one place to clean up an optics problem for the Biden administration. And then the number of gotaways is just an untold number of folks. And I know that the estimate is 400,000 known gotaways this year alone have entered the United States. The real number is almost certainly higher than that. 
And your point about how this has an impact, not just in border states, explains why there were 10 Republican governors at this news conference. It wasn't just Governor Abbott and Governor Ducey, who were obviously there. It was also Governor Reynolds from Iowa, Governor Kemp from Georgia, and others. Bill, I want to ask you about a few other things that you've reported. And we talked a bit about them yesterday. I raised them on the show. Reports of people who have been encountered and have been detained at the border, not counting any of the gotaways. And we know that the cartels and the traffickers and the coyotes specifically try to get people with kids and family units to all gather in one area to distract from other areas to allow, you know, higher risk people to be able to slip into the country undetected and and not get detained. That is part of their strategy here. And we've heard that from border officials now uh, for many months. But among those who have gotten caught, there are a litany of folks, even in just in one sector alone, correct, who have been convicted of serious crimes already in the United States, have been deported, and now they're back again. That's correct. Um, look, there is no global database that Border Patrol has access to where they can check criminal histories for people, say, coming in from Syria or, or Turkey or something like that. The databases yeah, they are working with, yeah, the, the databases they're working with, for the most part, are here in the U.S. So these are people who have been convicted of crimes in the U.S. and have been previously deported. So then they try to come back. And it used to be you know, if you if you are a repeat offender at the border, they used to prosecute that. They don't do that anymore. I mean, now if, if somebody gets sent back via Title 42, they'll come back that same day. They'll come back the next day. I mean, they'll try over and over and over. And the federal government started to kind of realize that. So what they've been trying to do now is instead of just busing them back across the border, they'll put them on an airplane and fly them deep into southern Mexico to try to make it harder for them to come back up here. But as we've seen, it's, it's not slowing anything down. It's not stopping anybody from trying. And the crazy thing is, the worst is potentially yet to come. I mean, I'm sure you've seen all these reports about the potential 60,000 more Haitians making their way through uh, Mexico right, and that's Haitians, the border right now. Am I correct? That's Haitians alone, not to count that, any of the other correct. you know, many thousands that's of people from more than 100 different countries, right? It's just 60,000 Haitians in that group coming toward the border. That's correct. And where that number is coming from is from Panama's foreign minister. She said at the start of the year, there were about, once, once Joe Biden took over, there were 80,000 Haitians who passed through Panama. About 20,000 of them have turned up at the U.S. border already. So that leaves about 60,000 left that are still trying to move north. So that's where that number comes from. And there's, there have been videos from Tapatula, Mexico, of those Haitians holding protests, demanding to be able to move north. The Mexican government does offer resistance in some areas, um, but other times they just let them through. And that's what we saw happen with Del Rio. I mean, it's it's pretty breathtaking. I mentioned the 400,000 gotaways. That was the estimate from the former Border Patrol chief interviewed on special report the last two nights. Are you also hearing, because I know that it was reported elsewhere, that in October, right, because over the summer it was supposed to be so hot that this would sort of calm down and we would see the numbers dip. We saw the opposite. The numbers were sky high in July and August, 20-year-plus highs in terms of uh, border encounters. They're worried that in October with the weather cooling down, that number could grow substantially, perhaps even double. Are you hearing that? I've seen the reports that they're trying to prepare for the potential of 400,000. I mean, if that happened... I mean, that's just insane. I mean, we've had 200,000 over the last couple of months, and that's just completely overwhelming. Um, 
I will be shocked if it's that many. Um, yeah. I think I think what those reports are kind of putting together is just you know the sixty thousand Haitians, the cooling down of the weather, more people seeing that people are being released. I, I think that's kind of like the worst case scenario that they're potentially mm-hmm. trying to plan for. It. If that actually, yeah, because if, if all of a sudden it's three hundred thousand, like oh, see, it's not so bad. Three hundred thousand, two hundred and fifty thousand, a third consecutive month of two hundred thousand plus would be astounding unto itself. Uh, so I sort of wonder, are they maybe conditioning us to expect 400,000 and then claim victory if it's another totally unsustainable high growth number? Bill Malugin, last question for you. You tweeted some images of it looked like guys in, in tactical vests with, with long guns, powerful weapons. Where did you get these images? Who were these people? And what are the implications of some of these images? So those are cartel gunmen in Roma, Texas. They're involved in human smuggling. We're actually in Roma right now, about a mile away from where those pictures were taken. Uh, they're cartel gunmen in Roma, Texas. They bring people across the river. And what you're seeing in those photos is they're holding AK-47s and they're wearing tack vests. And they are taunting the Texas National Guard soldiers on the other side of the river, brandishing their weapons. This is something that I'm told has happened multiple times in recent days and really just kind of shows how ballsy some of these cartel members are. We often hear uh, we often hear that the cartels are always working at the border, but very rarely do we actually get to see them like that in, in a picture holding their weapons just out in the middle of broad daylight. So tonight we are actually embedding with the Texas National Guard here in Roma um, in the exact area where this has been happening. So we'll, 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 see, we'll see what happens with wow. that. And those photos, those photos were courtesy of Texas DPS. I mean, it's just so brazen, and they're operating clearly with what they believe to be complete impunity. Are they ridiculing and taunting the, the Texas officials, basically saying, we're here and there's nothing you can do about it? It's not so much they're saying anything. It's the fact that they're just standing out in the middle of the Rio Grande with high-powered rifles and just eyeing right, the look at us. down. Knowing, no, as they're bringing people across the river, knowing they're not going to do anything. And they, they, wow. they, stay on the other, they, they stay on the Mexican side of the river. So to, they, they make sure to do that. Because, the, I mean, make no mistake, if they were to raise one of their weapons at one of those National Guards, they're going to get blown away. They know that. We know that. Um, so they're, they're just kind of, you know, they're just kind of taunting them a little bit. Yeah. I mean, part of me wonders if if they did raise the weapon toward our officials in this country and there was a firefight, you almost wonder if the federal government would take the side of our own officials the way things have been going. Um, I won't make you comment on that, Bill. That's just a side commentary from me, some uh, color analysis here on The Guy Benson Show. Uh, that's Bill Malugin on the ground in Texas, Roma, Texas, at the border. Bill, you're embedding tonight with those officials. Stay safe. Keep up the great work. We'll have you back soon. Will do. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. And just that high-performance hair every step of the way. It's very impressive. (laughs) With that, we will step aside. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. What is the White House's response to the fact that an ambassador nominee was at this event? And secondly, should we expect to see more people who seek jobs in this administration attending events like this in the future? Well, to be clear, we've spoken to the arrangement that is run by the gallerist uh, and Hunter Biden's 
uh, representatives that the White House provided suggestions for. I'd refer you to the gal- galleries for questions about uh, the event um, and, and, and as well as the uh, representatives of uh, Mr. Garcetti in terms of his attendance. It's the Guy Benson show. I feel like I'll refer you to the gallerists as the new circle back for circle back Jen Psaki. That was yesterday at the White House asked about Hunter Biden's art career, his budding art career. Are he's selling his art and listing it for six figures, like 500 grand? I actually don't hate the art. I've seen some of it. I'm like, oh, I actually sort of like some of this. Would I pay thousands of dollars for it, let alone hundreds of thousands? Absolutely not, unless I really wanted to curry some favor with that family. The patriarch of which is president of the United States, which is the whole ethical concern here across the board, right, left and center. Ethics experts in government are saying, no, this this uh, is not great. This doesn't look good. This. This reeks. Because Hunter Biden, I guess his new twist in his career, he's 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 a renaissance man. Right. He's an expert on oil and gas or he gets paid what, five figures a month at Burisma in Ukraine when his dad is running that policy in Ukraine for the Biden administration, just a a huge, or the Obama administration, rather. That's just a huge coincidence that he gets that lucrative gig, right? Then he's brought into all these other money-making schemes from Chinese companies. He just, he knows so much about business, apparently, and now he can't do that. So he's just so good at art that people want to pay $500,000 for it. And they say, oh, it's all anonymous. They won't know who bought or sold the paintings. We won't know who actually, you know, paid the money for them. So you can't buy favors that way, except Hunter Biden was at one of these gallery events, hobnobbing with the people who were perhaps in the running to buy his art, including someone who wants to be appointed to a position by his dad. Exactly the type of conflict that people warned about. I mean, come on. Come on. Don't insult us about what's going on here. We all understand what this is. Maybe she should use that phrase on a bunch of different questions. Hey, what about those thousands of of Americans stuck in Afghanistan? I'll refer you to the gallerist. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour on the Guy Benson Show kicking off here. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. On the radio side, we are right here until 6 p.m. Eastern time on TV. I'll be joining Brett Bayer's panel tonight on Special Report and then Kennedy's panel on Fox Business Network. Looking forward to that. Still to come this hour, Carol Markowitz. Next hour, Bill Hemmer. A lot to get to here on the program. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. And our podcast is available on demand every day for free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes the day up 337 points, ending at 34,754. And another Fox News alert, actually. 
President Biden is currently speaking on the importance of vaccine requirements, vaccine mandates, the types of mandates, frankly, that he said would not happen. He had assured Americans that would not be the case. His press secretary said that was beyond the realm and the scope and the power of the federal government. Uh, They've now basically reversed themselves on that with a few end runs. I'm a big vaccine supporter. I think it's interesting to see him talking about how coercion works. Of course it works. It's like, hey, you're going to lose your job unless you do the thing that we're forcing you to do. That's going to work for a lot of people. It also may deepen mistrust when you've told many of those people that you would not intervene in such a way. He is speaking in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. I know it well because it is home to AM560, our Chicago affiliate where I started my career years ago. It's just out there by O'Hare Airport. Let's quickly dip in and listen to a few words from President Biden as he speaks live. Five percent of his employees fully vaccinated under its requirements. These requirements work. And as the business roundtable others told me when I announced the first requirement, that encouraged businesses to feel they could come in and demand the same thing of their employees. More people are getting vaccinated. More lives are being saved. Let's be clear. When you see headlines and reports of mass firings and hundreds of people losing their jobs, look at the bigger story. I've spoken with Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines, who's here today. United went from 59% of their employees to 99% of their employees in less than two months after implementing the requirement. 99%. All right, so that's President Biden in Illinois making the point that is obvious. If you threaten people with their jobs, unless they do something, in many cases they will do it. Now, some people have resisted and they have lost their jobs. But I'm not sure it's a great flex to say, hey, we're not going to come in at the federal level and require vaccines. The CDC director said that. Dr. Fauci said that. President Biden said that. Jen Psaki said that. Then they pull a 180 and... They basically hold a gun to the head of American workers. Well, nice job you have there. If you want to keep it, you better do this thing. And then a lot of people understandably say, okay, I'll do the thing. Then you say, success. Yeah, coercion does work. I prefer persuasion on this particular front, and I've used this platform repeatedly to try to persuade many of you or all of you to go get vaccinated, as I fully am now vaccinated, as of what, May? And when the booster becomes available to me, if it does, I will go get boosted. That is different than a government mandate. And it's very different from the original messaging from this president. But that's the speech he's giving in Illinois. In the meantime, I just want to bring you another update. The Senate apparently has agreed to a bipartisan deal. This happened overnight. It was announced this morning to raise the debt ceiling just a bit to get us into December, and then we'll do this all over again. So Mitch McConnell had a compromise, and the Democrats have partially taken the compromise, but it seems like nothing has actually been resolved, which is a very D.C. outcome, is it not? Joining us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal, a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, guy. All right, I want you to get some time here to respond to a few of the things that I've already mentioned before we get into uh, some of the polling and some of the interesting dynamics in electoral politics. First, President Biden out there talking up 
vaccine mandates, how important they are. As I mentioned, a bit of a reversal from the way that they talked about these things with the American people uh, even a few months ago. And then the debt ceiling quasi-temporary deal on Capitol Hill. We are awaiting word on when that vote may or may not occur this afternoon or this evening. It is expected sometime today. Your thoughts on those fronts, Josh? Well, the issue of the mandates may be one of the more important political debates, and we'll we'll see sort of an early litigation of that issue next month in Virginia in the governor's race, because both candidates in that race are pro-vaccination, but Youngkin, the Republican, is running against the mandate side of it. So polling showed, I wrote a column about this, talking to strategists on both sides. Democrats think this is a slam dunk issue that, that most Americans, especially in a lean blue state like Virginia, but but also across the country, want mandates. They want their workplace to be healthy. They they they, they don't they think the government can do whatever it wants as long as they're getting the results that that, that they're looking for. Uh, Republicans think that there's sort of a silent majority and sort of a quiet backlash against again the heavy handed nature of government, uh, not not necessarily just against vaccines, but against private companies uh, being forced to to tell their employees what to do in terms of getting the vaccine. And especially, and this is is my issue with it, as I think I underscored, as I'm extremely pro-vaccine, I am much less comfortable with mandates coming down from the federal government. And I think it's especially hard to swallow when you had the people at the top levels of the executive branch and the public health bureaucracy insist that would not be the case. They weren't going to try something like that. They weren't going to implement mandates until all of a sudden they did. There's a lot of mistrust floating around out there with this pandemic and a lot of what we've all been through. I'm not sure that flip-flop and now sort of the the chest-thumping about it helps heal some of that mistrust, maybe to put it lightly. Well, you played that little clip of President Biden. It, it, it didn't actually sound like chest thumping. It sounded like he was a little bit on the defensive because there, there have been headlines all across the country of hundreds, if not thousands, of people at these different these hospitals or these healthcare agencies that have been fired because they refused to get right. the vaccine. Now it's important to note that that's only about two, three percent of the overall workforce, but that's a lot of people. Two to three percent of lay, layoffs or firings. And any if that that was a, just a normal um, you know period of layoffs in a company, you, you'd see you'd see a lot of bad news uh, there. I mean that's not that's a not insignificant that's not an insignificant number. If that that's a good point. Continues. And these are by the way these are the healthcare you know the, the hospitals the healthcare agencies the schools like the harder part is going to be every private business where you're not you you know there's less of a of, of a you know perhaps less of a demand. Um, so. You know, I, I, he, he, the president did sound like he played, was playing a little bit of defense on that, on that issue when, when you uh, tuned into him and his speech in Chicago. So I, I, I think this is yet to be politically litigated. I think there's a little bit of a bubble, a college-educated, affluent bubble, where you know, everyone I know has gotten vaccinated, wants to get the vaccine, wants to get the booster, and, and that, 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 that's understandable. It's the right thing to do, right? But there's a lot of voters that are more wary, more hesitant, and, and even if they've been vaccinated, they're wary of, of the heavy-handed mandates coming down. Well, sure, and there's also a bunch of workers who did not have the luxury of being white-collar workers, people like us who could work from home for a year and a half. They had to go in, clock in every single day while the pandemic was raging with no vaccine on the horizon. And they showed up and they did their job day in and day out to provide for their families, to keep society working, quite frankly. And quite a few of them got COVID and recovered from COVID and have antibodies against COVID. 
and they're sort of told by the bubble that you were just talking about that those antibodies don't really count. These other antibodies do count, and it's sort of an us versus them thing that I think really frustrates a lot of people, perhaps rightly so. Josh, quickly your thoughts on the Senate deal between Schumer and McConnell. Uh, I don't really know how to frame it as anything other than a short-term punt that really benefits no one with neither party, quote-unquote, winning here. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it's it's a stalemate, and, and McConnell blinked first, but I don't think it really means a whole lot politically. If they we're basically going to be fighting these same fights either in December or maybe maybe January, based on what I'm hearing on Capitol Hill. Uh, it, it, what it does is give Democrats more bandwidth to deal with the, the spending packages we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, but that may not be good for them because that they're no for, they're no closer to striking a deal on infrastructure and and, and social. Uh, services spending than they were a week ago. So they're going to have a little more bandwidth to deal with that issue. But that's also one that divides the Democratic Party. It actually may be more contentious. Uh, when you it, know, when Josh, I saw this poll from Morning Consult and Politico. I'm not sure because the Democrats are saying we still aren't going to use reconciliation to raise the debt ceiling in December. We're not going to do it. They have to realize at some point, right, that they are in charge, right? The media might cover for them and spin, and they always attack the Republicans no matter what. But the Democrats have the House and the Senate and the White House and the power to raise the debt ceiling on their own, which is what they forced Republicans to do when Republicans had full power in 2006, for example. This poll from Politico Morning Consult asked if there were a default on the debt, if this thing really went down the tubes, who would you blame? The Democrats, the Republicans, or both parties equally? Only 16% say the Republican Party. More than double that say the Democrats would be to blame, and the rest say both parties equally. When you're in charge and bad things happen and there are things within your power that you choose not to do for political reasons, you can try to spin it, but ultimately the buck stops with the party in power. So I kind of wonder what the actual strategy is here from these Democrats. Well, that same poll guy showed that like most voters don't even know what's going on, right? <laughs> they, right. They, they're totally <laughs> bold. I mean, this is the most. Even people who are on the hill for years and years are, are, are kind of having their eyes glaze over on the details of what reconciliation is and what all the details of, of the machinations and raising the debt ceiling. Look, you 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 kind of nailed it on the head that if there's a crisis, then people start paying attention. And um, when you're in charge of you know when you're the presidency and the Congress and you're in charge and this happens on your watch, usually that party takes takes the lion's share of the blame. You know, I, I honestly, I've seen so many of these these staring contests before, and we, you know, everyone, everyone, you know, raises the prospect of of a, of a crisis, but it never happens. And you know, I think today and then yesterday's show that we're we always go towards the precipice, but never off the yeah. precipice. Yeah, we'll do it again uh, around yeah. Christmas. That'll be fun, but it'll get resolved because it always does, and we always seem to have these cliffs and yelling and battles and freakouts right around Christmas, which is nice and relaxing for the holidays. Josh on the Virginia governor's race. We had Glenn Youngkin here on the show yesterday. You mentioned it. You invoked it a moment ago. Youngkin, before I even raised it, I asked him a question about Terry McAuliffe and some of the comments he made about education and parents. And Youngkin, of course, hammered away on that. He's got ads blanketing Northern Virginia on that issue. He then pivoted to this FBI DOJ investigation or intervention at school board meetings and the the specter of domestic terrorism being raised, which I think is just crazy hyperbole. We'll get into that later with Carol Markowitz. But he brought that up proactively. It was my second or third question I had planned. He is chomping at the bit, Glenn Youngkin was, to get into that. It really feels like 
in these closing days with with voting now open, early voting in Virginia, it feels like the Yunkin people are confident that they have a closing message. It seems like an extremely close race. What's your read on it right now in the early stages of October? Yeah, it's not. I mean, his appearance is very notable on your show, Guy. But if you watch TV in Northern Virginia or, or in Richmond or in Tidewater, all you see are education ads, education ads featuring the quote McAuliffe said at the last debate, essentially saying that school boards, school officials are more important than parents in, in deciding the course of a kids' education. It's, it's interesting because we talked on this show, Guy, about education being this big issue that's really percolating in, in that Virginia race. And Republicans were having a sort of a difficult way to talk about it because there's some people that are parents frustrated about critical race theory. There's some that are worried about, you know, the, the standards in schools. There's some people worried about school choice. And there are a whole grab bag of issues that are really driving parents mad and, and all across the political spectrum. The right. School closures with COVID. Closures, of course, yes. And and McCullough sort of crystallized it with that one soundbite. You know, sometimes yep. different people be frustrated about different things. But McCullough's quote in that debate that, you know, parents are secondary to school boards or school administrators, that, like, said it all for, for the Republican message. It got all those things in that one box. And, and they, they think that's a that's a big issue. It's a percolating issue. And it may be the, the issue that puts, puts them over the top in the race. And lastly, in their last debate, Terry McAuliffe said the words Donald Trump or Trump 14 times. He would not say Joe Biden's name. He was caught on a Zoom call saying, yeah, Biden's basically a liability in Virginia for me at this point. He's polling poorly. That also seems significant. I mean, some of these headwinds for the Democrats are real. Uh, If the Republicans can't win in this environment, it's sort of like, you know, when could they win? Well, guy, here's something to watch. Uh, Joe Biden, President Biden already campaigned for McAuliffe earlier in the year. He, McAuliffe had said that Biden's coming back to the state at some point before the election. Mm, I'm hearing some Democrats so. saying that may not happen. If Biden doesn't do a pre-election rally for McAuliffe, like you usually see, you know, get the biggest name in your party to get out the vote and really excite the, 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 the Democratic voters, that's a really big warning sign. That's going to be a really big problem because they need the turnout. They need the enthusiasm. But if they're not going to be utilizing Biden in the state that he won by 10 points, Goodness gracious, that's, that's, a, that's a big red flag for the Democratic Party. Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal. You can read his column, Against the Grain. Fox News Radio political analyst, Josh. Great stuff as usual. Talk soon. Thanks, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's the 25th birthday of Fox News Channel today. We'll address that some more in the next hour with Bill Hemmer, and I'll have some thoughts as well. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. We mentioned uh, several times in the last number of shows this incident out in Arizona involving Senator Cinema being chased into a bathroom by harassing activists, including people filming her as she entered and exited a toilet stall. And the president's response to this was pretty weak, right? He could barely muster the energy to say that it was not appropriate just the lightest tap on the wrist, and they said, but it happens. It's part of the process. I wonder how he would feel if that were 
his wife being chased down by MAGA people into a bathroom filming her. Right? I, I don't know if he would call it part of the process. But that's how he framed it with Senator Cinema. There were some Democrats who were more interested in going to bat for her, condemning it more vociferously. A lot of Republicans did too, by the way. Everyone should have. I think it was a big missed opportunity and a failure by President Biden. But some interesting drama reported from Axios. A group of Democratic senators were circulating a statement that they were all going to sign defending Cinema and condemning what happened to her. And apparently it was sent over to Bernie Sanders the Vermont socialist who owns three houses and his staff, I guess, asked him, would he sign on to this? And they suggested some extra language. They didn't want to just say, hey, this is plainly inappropriate, unacceptable. It was pretty strongly worded, the statement. What Bernie wanted was to add some language condemning her position and making it clear that he disagrees with her position on the issue as throat clearing before he says, but you shouldn't do these things. Which is kind of gross, honestly. You should be able to unequivocally, without any sort of caveat, condemn what happened. But Bernie suggested these edits. They were rejected. Apparently, Cory Booker, to his credit, said, no, we're not changing this. And so Bernie said, all right, I'm out. And he wouldn't sign it. Classy stuff from the Vermont Socialist on The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Pleased to have you here every day for three hours, we hope. If not, there's a podcast for that. On demand and free. GuyBensonShow.com. We are joined by Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post, friend of the program. Carol, welcome back. Hi, Guy. How's it going? It's going well. I'm interested in your column at foxnews.com. Who do your children belong to, you or your government? Seems like a pretty obvious answer to most Americans, but some relatively revealing statements in recent days from a gubernatorial candidate in Virginia, from the Secretary of Education in the Biden administration. Your thoughts and your thesis on this question. So I think it used to be sort of accepted that parents are in charge of their kids. Uh, But recently there's been some question about that. And I think the Terry McAuliffe comments are really uh, illuminating. And I think that it's crazy that they haven't gotten more attention because the story behind them really, really resonates for me. So uh, it was during the gubernatorial debate in Virginia. And uh, the issue came up of a parent in Fairfax County in Virginia uh, standing up and saying that she discovered two books in the high school library of her kid's school that were shocking. And I mean, when I, I, I just assumed, oh, probably some racy language or whatever, like some, you know, parent that just saw something that they didn't like and it's really not that big a deal. But when that parent read what she found in those books, my jaw dropped and I am no prude. It was shocking. It was straight up pedophilia. And I'm not even kidding. Um, And that was the topic of discussion when Terry McAuliffe said that parents cannot just pull books out of the library. This was pornographic pedophilia, child rape, no joke. And it was two books in the library. And absolutely, parents should have the right to take those kinds of books out of their kids. And I believe, by the way, just to jump in here, Carol, that the bill in this case that Terry McAuliffe blocked as governor was not to ban books or pull the books out of the library, but to simply notify parents about the existence of the books. And he said, paraphrasing, but I'm not that far off, parents don't get to decide what's taught in schools. 
That's exactly right. And he said, and he added, and parents can't come in and take books out of the library. Now, I, I feel like you and I will probably be on the same side of, I, I cannot think of many books that I would want banned or taken out of the library. I, I think we do need to have shocking ideas. But I really do draw the line at child rape. So, you know, I, I think that most In a school library, will. right? I think that's at yeah, least a fair discussion to have, right? What, what's the point of this? What's the value of this? Do parents have a right to know that this content is available in the school library? That's a different conversation than, hey, let's create a bonfire and toss in books that we don't like because the content is stuff that we disagree with or object to. But The sort of flippant thing that McAuliffe said, which we had Glenn Youngkin on the show yesterday, he pointed out actually McAuliffe was wrong on Virginia law as well in this whole controversy. It goes to the broader question, and we now have this very interesting fissure in our politics where there are a lot of folks who believe actually let's try to keep parents as far away from the educational process as possible because we have a job to do. I think a lot of that is ideological and not pedagogical in far too many cases. And we now have this intervention from the federal government, the DOJ, the FBI, that are casting some, you know, rowdy school board meetings as if it's some sort of grave threat to national security and, in fact, domestic terrorism. And, Carol, I would imagine you and I agree on the point. Threats are unacceptable. Violence is unacceptable. People need to comport themselves, behave themselves and make their points. And if there are exceptions and bad things happen, then fine. Get the local police involved if necessary. We need to protect people who are serving in public office. And I have no problem with any of that. I do question the degree to which this is being cast as some sort of big problem or crisis across the entire country where the federal government needs to get involved. And I imagine you have some thoughts there as well. Yeah, so I I would say that none of this is a coincidence because for the last 19 months, parents got a real close-up of what their kids were learning. The kids were home in many places across the country. So parents saw what they were actually learning. You know, I have a friend who has a second grader who, um, you know, they're talking about what pronouns they should be using and um, issues like that, which, you know, maybe for a sixth grader, that's that's fine. But when you're um, in second grade, it should be a totally different curriculum. So I think parents are really seeing some some close-up things that they don't want their kids to learn. Um, and I, I think the critical race theory is a big part of that as well. Like, I think when you're having kindergartners talk about whether they're the oppressors or they're, they're the oppressed, we've gone too far. And so you have these school board meetings where parents are very passionate and it's not just curriculum. You know, I know that in, for example, Palm Beach County, Florida, one of the, they get very rowdy over masking. The, the state is not supposed to have masking, according to the governor. Um, there's no mask mandates in schools, but the, the county schools are overruling that. So there's a lot of issues right now where parents feel like they're, they don't have control over what's happening with their own kids. And these, these meetings absolutely get loud. They absolutely um, get, you know, passionate. But they, there are no threats here. I, I, I have watched many, many, many school board meetings, and I've never seen a threat happen. And, yeah, look, uh, there, there have been Rufo, some pushing and shoving that we've seen on video occasionally. There might be reports here or there of people issuing threats. I'm willing to admit that when you have a massive country with a lot of power diffused across multiple jurisdictions from coast to coast with – hundreds of millions of people in the country and tens of millions of parents at thousands of these types of meetings, which, by the way, were non-existent for a year plus because of COVID, while a lot of the damage was being done with closed schools, I'm willing to concede that there are probably some people who behave badly, and I'm not willing to defend those people. I'm also not willing to say this is, a, uh, this is an issue that rises to the level of a threat 
that the federal government needs to get involved in with memos from the attorney general and getting the FBI involved and phrases like domestic terrorism. And that actually brings me, by the way, to a fact check, quote unquote, from the Associated Press. This was yesterday. Here's the tweet from the Associated Press. Contrary to false claims circulating online, the National School Boards Association didn't ask President Joe Biden to label protesting parents, quote, domestic terrorists. And there's no indication Biden or the Justice Department called them terrorists either. And then they have their link to the fact check. Corey DeAngelis, who is a school choice advocate, we've had him on the show, he simply screenshotted and highlighted the letter in question. And it's just amazing the amount of gaslighting involved here. Maybe these school board members, these teachers unions assume that people cannot read. But I'm looking right here at the letter that was sent to the Justice Department saying, quote, these heinous actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. As such, NSBA requests a joint expedited review by the U.S. Department of Justice and then a few other uh, agencies as well. It goes on later in this letter that the NSBA requests that such reviews examine appropriate enforceable actions against these crimes and acts of violence under the Gun-Free School Zones Act and the Patriot Act in regards to domestic terrorism. So twice in one paragraph, we see the phrase domestic terrorism. They invoke the Patriot Act. They are specifically requesting action from the Biden administration, and they got that action. And here's the Associated Press, Carol, waltzing in and saying, oh, you crazy right wingers, you have it all wrong. This misinformation is spreading that domestic terrorism was used in this letter, and it's simply not true. It's a false claim. And yet it is literally in black and white, Carol, we can read. Yeah, I think who are you going to believe, you know, the AP or your lying eyes? I think absolutely this was a direct result of the National School Board Association asking the Biden administration to do something, and they did. And, you know, I was going to say that uh, Christopher Rufo looked into all of the examples provided about threats issued to school board members. And of the 20 examples that they gave, and only 20 in a, in a gigantic country like ours, right. one right. was an actual threat. The rest were not. Um, so, you know, I, I, I tweeted this yesterday, but is, for example, going to be following a school board member into a bathroom going to be considered a threat? Because it's not considered a threat when it happens to a senator. Is it going to be a threat for a school board member? And look, I think we should all be behaving better. I, You and I, I'm sure, agree on this. I know that we you know, uh, tend to think that you, you can have a rational, calm conversation. You don't have to be screaming. You don't have to be um, angry. But the truth is that a lot of these parents have, have reached the end of their, like, limit. Um, they are, they, they feel like they're out of control and they can't get their, they can't get for their kids what they want. And it's, I, I really do understand why it ends up with yelling, even though, again, I think that we sh- tempers should calm down and we should all take a breath and not scream at each other. And Carol, because there's been a huge backlash to this intervention from the DOJ and the FBI, which in my view is clearly politicized. It's about chilling speech and passion. It's about intimidating people not to speak out. It's about delegitimizing legitimate concerns that people have and sort of creating this overblown sense of an emergency that doesn't really exist. And I think Chris Rufo's analysis and digging into it that you just mentioned really helped illustrate that. And again, we heard from a lot of these same people in the media and an elected office a year ago over the summer talking about mostly peaceful riots where there were entire neighborhoods on fire with people dying and businesses being razed to the ground. And that was downplayed as not really that big of a deal. And everyone needs to – why are these right-wingers obsessed and fixated on 
you know, Portland, Oregon, where they're trying to burn down a federal courthouse every night for months on end. That was all minimized. But here, parents raising their voices at school board meetings, this is worthy of the DOJ getting involved and sicking the FBI on an issue. I find that galling. I find it obviously political in nature. It doesn't make sense beyond the political framing and framework that we just laid out. Last point, Carol, Randy Weingarten, our dear friend, one of the big teachers union bosses, she, of course, is going to bat on behalf of this intervention. Of course. I mean, there was no question that she was going to do this because she's all about delegitimizing people who have real fair beef with decisions being made by supposed adults in charge of education in a lot of places in the country. So she's going to side with the DOJ and with this organization talking about domestic terrorism. And the way that she's engaged in this conversation, the way that she's wading in is by basically demagoguing people saying, if you have a problem with this, if you're part of the backlash on this, you're not really about free speech. You are defending, if not endorsing violence. That is basically her message and I feel like this is someone who needs perhaps remedial reading and math lessons from time to time. But I can't help but wonder if this is not fully intentional, just deceit on her part, deceit on those who are trumping this thing up as something that it's not, who then insist that we're the crazy ones. This is where gaslighting comes in. We're the crazy ones for noticing what's happening, for objecting to the federal government getting involved here in the FBI and pretending like, oh, you're just making this whole thing up about domestic terrorism, even though they're the ones that brought it up and put it in their own letter to which the federal government responded. Yeah. No one has done more to hurt kids over the time of the pandemic than Randy Weingarten. She's absolutely at the top of my list of who has put kids last, who has made sure that poor kids got left behind, um, who would love to separate parents from their kids' uh, schooling completely. She does not want them to be involved at all. She does not want them to see what the kids are learning, uh, and, you know, with good reason. Um, And absolutely, she is at the forefront of defending the idea that parents should not be allowed to speak out at these meetings, of trying to shut down that speech. She wants to contain um, the message, and parents absolutely should not let her. They have to continue speaking out. They're, They're making changes, and they should continue to do so. Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. She contributes to FoxNews.com from time to time as well. Carol, always glad to have you here. We'll have you back soon. Bye. Thank you. And the Guy Benson Show is back right after this. You're listening to Guy Benson. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Thanks for being here. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We open today's program with a monologue about coronavirus, about COVID safety theater, about data versus superstition. And part of the reason that I continue to be fired up about this is because some of the people making decisions in positions of power, especially where it's sort of blue country, where the Democratic Party and the supposedly pro-science crowd is fully ensconced and entirely in charge, they are sometimes the most draconian and least science-guided people that there are. And they force people to do things. You think of the indoor mask mandates even for vaccinated people in places like D.C. and San Francisco, where the mayors who institute those requirements don't even follow them themselves. And when caught or called out, they just don't care. Right. It's this type of power play plus the 
neurotic nature of a lot of the people who want to follow these rules and for the rules to be in place forever and ever, amen, they have outsized influence in a lot of places. And insane decisions are still being made every day. Here's the latest example, and it's right here in Washington, D.C. Headline, National Zoo cancels boo at the zoo and zoo lights over coronavirus concerns. For the second year in a row, reads the story from DCist, the Smithsonian's National Zoo won't be hosting its traditional boo at the zoo event or the popular zoo lights, which is usually a Christmas time holiday tradition, citing concerns about the pandemic. The Washington Post first reported the news, quote, you can appreciate that the primary audience for Halloween events are children not able to be vaccinated at this time. Our priority is still to do everything we can to keep visitors, staff and animals safe. That was a zoo spokesperson. We feel hopeful that 2022 will bring new opportunities. So the National Zoo will not be running I feel to some extent like I'm just shouting into the ether, but allow me to shout into the ether a little louder. We are well over a year and a half into this nightmare. We have known for many months that children are overwhelmingly safe from this disease, extremely unlikely, vanishingly unlikely to die from it, almost to the point of statistically non-existent COVID deaths among children. And they represent a tiny fraction of hospitalizations. Kids, because they're kids, are overwhelmingly safe from the virus, thank God, with some sad exceptions, obviously. We don't want to downplay those, but we don't want to let the tiny exceptions dictate the rules for everyone else. This goes back to our opening monologue today. So that's what we knew about kids and still do. We also know that being outside is the safest place you can be from COVID. You are safe from COVID outdoors overwhelmingly, even if you're an adult. These are events targeted for kids outdoors. But because kids can't get vaccinated yet, For safety, quote unquote, the National Zoo has decided no outdoor events at the zoo over the holidays, even though their logic is not rooted at all in the actual science. It makes absolutely no sense at all. None. And by the way, a lot of these families know what they're going to do. They're going to take their kids elsewhere, probably indoors, which in the scheme of things is less safe. It's not about safety. It's not about science. It's about neurotic people and power-hungry people exerting their will in the name of public safety, and they do not care what the actual facts are or what the data shows. That is the reality, which is why this type of overreach has to be fought and criticized. I hope I don't get reported for misinformation or domestic terrorism for saying so. Because that's how the critics are treated increasingly, it would seem, these days. It's crazy. They treat us like we're the crazy ones. This is what's crazy. This is what's anti-science. 
Final hour on The Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. Bill Hammer reflecting on his 16 years out of 25 years in the history of Fox News Channel. We are celebrating that anniversary today. I can't wait for this discussion with Bill Hammer, and that's coming up next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the full show every day. It's available around the clock for free and on demand via podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It is so good. I plan on having one or two this weekend, perhaps to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Fox News. We will get to more on that in a moment with our guest, But the long drink is available in increasing areas of the country. They are expanding due to popular demand. You can see where it's sold near you by logging on thelongdrink.com. You can also order online. Thelongdrink.com. Crisp, refreshing, delicious. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. With that, let's get to Bill Hemmer, co-host of America's Newsroom. Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 a.m. on Fox News Channel. His podcast is Hemmer Time at foxnewspodcast.com. Bill, welcome back to the show. Guy, good to be with you. I got you on speaker because I was Googling the long drink. Yes, sir. Oh, it's all over New York. You should definitely check it out. If you are open to have a delicious alcoholic beverage from time to time, I strongly recommend checking out the long drink. Gotcha. Okay here. Long <laughs> drink it is. I, listen, I like Stella on tap with a good clean line and a chilled glass. Uh, not in the bottle, not in the can, on tap. And I like a kettle one and tonic with a lot of lime. Okay, I think that you might actually enjoy the long drink. Are you a golfer, Bill? I love to play golf. <laughs> okay, a bunch of my golfing buddies take a little six-pack of long drink with them. They say it's a great drink on the course. I'm not a golfer myself, but I seem to recall that you were, so I wanted to pass along that helpful, friendly tip. But I actually agree with you on the beer front. I am a draft beer guy, first and foremost. I'll, you know, if necessary, you know, in cases of emergency, I will drink out of a can or a bottle. I just like a draft beer. Yep. Yep. I, I am in your camp, my man. It tastes better. So long as the lines are clean. And here in New York, they do it very well. All right, Bill Hammer, 25 years ago today, Fox News Channel debuted. It was poo-pooed, dismissed, mocked by a lot of the competition and media critics. And within just a few years, it was number one and has remained number one in the cable news race and sometimes in the entire cable ratings race for two decades. How long ago did you join Fox? It's been, it's been a minute now, hasn't it? 
Yeah, it's been a minute. I've been here 16 years. Thank you, Guy. Thanks wow. for having me today. I was at CNN for 10 years prior to that. So I saw the evolution. I saw the birth. I saw all of it, right? Um, I would take you back to 1995 when you had essentially four television news outlets, five, I'd say, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, and CNN. At the same time, you had four major newspapers, I'd argue, Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, and the USA Today, which was a lot more uh, widespread then than it is now. And those, those were your news sources. Fox comes along at the same time, and people don't realize, well, they don't remember it, but Fox came along at the same time that MSNBC was born. And our thinking at the time, being at CNN, was that MSNBC was going to be your competition. After all, you had money behind uh, Microsoft and money from General Electric, which was a much stronger company back then than it is now. And that we, we thought that was the challenge and did not pay much mind to Fox. But I, I, I'll tell you um, a little story. Uh, in the old Atlanta newsroom, the main news desk was in the newsroom itself. And the back side of it was open to your producers and your writers. So you could literally turn around at the, from the anchor chair and yell across the room to somebody at the national desk, international desk, writers, producers, whatever you like. And, and this was day, CNN, I Atlanta. I see it correct on that, yes. Uh, which is no longer constructed the way it is now, as you know. Um, right. And w one of my producers is laughing out loud. I turn around and say, Bob, what's so funny? He says, you've got to watch this show on Fox. I said, well, what's going on? He said, and they had a hot tub outside on the plaza here on 48th Street with Hooter girls, and they were giving out chicken wings at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and well, we all thought that was ridiculous and thought, well, who's going to watch that? And as I look back on it now, and I told Steve and Brian this earlier today, Steve Ducey and Brian Kilme, they were there for all of that. I said, what I understand now is that you guys are just trying to figure out what the audience would watch and what they would not watch. It was a great experiment. And Kilmeade agreed, and what he said was, you have to remember, that was the time before 9-11, before the world got really serious. And we could afford that time to go ahead and experiment with crazy ideas like that. But that's, that was kind of the root of the birth of the Fox News Channel, as I recall it, Guy. So you were at the competition for a decade, as you said. At what point did the smirks and chuckles turn into some maybe nervous perspiration? down in Atlanta. Yeah, um, I can't speak for the others. I can't speak for management because I do not know that answer. But I'll tell you when I noticed it. I went to Tallahassee for the election recount and uh, was there for 37 days. And one night in late October, I believe, uh, I think it was October, I'd have to look up the date, Catherine Harris, Secret no, sorry, sorry, late November. Catherine Harris, Secretary of State, was getting ready to certify the vote, and she chose Sunday night to do that. And it's northern Florida. It was chilly. It was cold. It was rainy. There was a mist floating through the air. And we were in the main courthouse of the Capitol building in Tallahassee, red brick everywhere. And that's where we broadcast come, uh, from primarily. We had about eight or ten protesters behind us. They were quiet. They were well-behaved. They're holding signs. Across the courtyard, what I could not see was this enormous crowd. Well, sorry. This enormous sound that kept occurring, and I, you know, one of our colleagues went over to check it out. And said, "Go find out what that's what's going on over there." And they came back and they said, "Oh, it's Fox, and they're yelling for Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity." 
I said, well, how many people are? She said, 150. And I said, no way. I said, folks, this is over because we have a competitor now. And I was watching the ratings, you know, over the course of the six-week story guy. And every day, Fox went higher and higher and higher than they had gone before. And I knew we had a game um, at that point. And most people think that it flipped on 9-11. It was just solidified after 9-11. The real change happened during the election recount of 2000. So how did you make your decision to come to Fox? How did that come to be? flipping from CNN to Fox News, and you've been here for 16 years since. Yeah, I mean, I, I came because Roger Ailes sold me on it, and um, I, I had a decision to make. I, I, I had a good gig at CNN. Um, I, I could have stayed with the company and gone to work in Washington, D.C. Um, I had just been in New York for a couple of years. I wasn't much interested in that, and I made the decision to stay in New York, and I had a couple options, and the option I chose was Fox, and the reason I did that is because they were kicking the pants out of everybody else in cable news, and I wanted to stay in cable. I really thought that was where the game was there and I, then, and I still think that's where the game is today. That's where all the action is, I should say. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I had a chance to crack the lineup of the New York Yankees in cable news, and I took advantage <laughs> of it. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that I did. I love this company. I like the people I work with. And, you know, generally, it's just a, it's it's a it's a good place to spend a lot of hours in your day. And I, I don't think you have a different opinion of that guy. And I mean, that would be my guess. And I, I think today I was like really happy today, you know, th- you know, thinking about 25 years and thinking about all the companies been through and what it means to so many people and, and what we do and the perspective we provide every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, you know, they, you know, we went through a lot of turmoil over the past, what, five, six years, yep. you know, and, and Trump years were tough, right? You know, the um, sexual harassment stuff that rippled through this company, it was tough. And the COVID stuff, uh, the pandemic over the past year and a half, that, that's tough. And it, it divides people. And I, I think today is a day where you can say, you know what, uh, it, it's a good place to be. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm here. Bill, you've had an amazing career and you will continue to have an amazing career. I have no doubt about that. There must be times occasionally when you're lying in bed at night in a moment of quiet and you're not thinking about the next day's show or some email that you have to respond to or your next trip or plane that you have to get on. You might from time to time reflect on the career that you've had already and on a whole litany of experiences where you've been in the anchor chair live on television for some pretty extraordinary events that have taken place, and you kind of take that wider perspective. I would imagine an anniversary like this would be an occasion to think back. Are there a few things in those quiet moments that immediately rush to your mind as really standout moments of your on-air time at Fox News that you will never forget? Wow, uh, you put me on the spot. Um, I want to pick a good one for you, guy. Um, give me half a second here. I, wow, um, it's I mean, a lot. I know. Pick, yeah, if you were to pick one moment, I, I don't know if I could do one moment, but they could do one of them. Yeah. I just think like in the early days, you know, I started here on the eve of Hurricane Katrina. 
it was eight o'clock at night. They called me in. It was a Sunday night. They said, can you anchor this two hour show? And I said, sure. And I walk into the studio. I, I don't know anyone. Julie Benderis, my colleague, is sitting in a chair. I say, hi, Julie. I'm Bill. She says, hey, hey Bill, I'm Julie. Here's your chair. And I said, where's the camera? Where's the monitor? And off we, off we ride. And um, that, that's kind of like the Fox experience. It's like jump in the water and swim. And I, I think it's the best way I can characterize it. But um... I think of you sometimes at the wall on election night, right? And there's a lot of planning for that. But I think your bread and butter is when things are breaking fast and there's no way really to rehearse. You're prepared, but you're not rehearsed and you just have to roll with it. Those are very different skill sets. And I'd imagine they both lead to some pretty major memories. Yeah, and the reason I think the reason why I feel comfortable in those moments, Guy, is because I came into the industry as a sportscaster, uh, first and foremost, a producer, then a reporter, then an anchor. And what sports anchoring does for you is that it 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 trains your brain to look at a piece of video and describe it out loud. And right. I, th- I think in many ways that's what breaking news is all about. And I, and I think the fuel in a breaking news story is always information and data and facts. And as long as that, as long as that information continues to come in, um, you, you can go forever. I mean, it, it really, there's a sense of adrenaline that happens when you're, when you're rolling with a story and it's of mega importance and you are the voice on the story and it's your job to tie it all together, to, to be that thread that ties these pieces together so the viewer can follow it. And I, I think it's an area that, that I, where, where you can thrive so long as there is information at your fingertips. And I, I think about election nights in this past one in, in 2020. Yeah, it, it was. It, we went all night on Tuesday, but Tuesday fed into Wednesday because the story was changing. And Wednesday fed into Thursday because we were getting more information. Same thing Thursday to Friday and then Friday to Saturday. We, you know, we didn't get to bed. But that, that's, that's the kind of adrenaline ride that you take with yourself when you're on these big stories of, of huge national and international importance. And you know, I, uh, I take your comment to heart. I, I think it's a high compliment. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you, Guy. Oh, well, it's, it's heartfelt. And I know perhaps to some listeners right now, this has been a self-indulgent conversation for us. But I think it's called for on a day like this, 25 years of Fox News. The anniversary is today. Last question, Bill. So many people listening to us, thousands and thousands of people listening live, listening on the podcast, a bunch of those people are Fox News viewers as well. I'd imagine the Venn diagram, it's not exactly a circle, but there's a lot of overlap. Talking directly to our listeners and our viewers who are so loyal year in and year out, including a new generation, younger people as well, what's your message to Fox News fans today? Um, listen, we, we wouldn't be here without you. And, you know, the sense of loyalty that you, that you get from the viewers here is just tremendous. And there's nothing else like it. You know, the, the brand loyalty based on, you know, the customers that we serve is just, it's phenomenal. Um, I think people, frankly, on the outside don't understand that because they haven't been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just recently traveling in the Northeast and, I was in a little town guy, and you know, I went in there to grab lunch with some friends, and 
<laughs> we were going to get some lobster, or, you know, nice. grab some seafood. And it was just every, just about every table in the restaurant. Hey, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, people in the parking lot, hey, stay strong. I mean, everyone. I was like, where's this come from? And the reason I point that out to you anecdotally is because I live in Manhattan. I can walk down the sidewalk every day of my life and just be, and just be me. <laughs> um, but when you, when, when you get out in America, you are reminded of your duty and your responsibility to provide the perspective that's necessary and the perspective that people have come to appreciate mm-hmm. when they choose to watch us. And it's, um, it's a big responsibility but it's also a high honor. It really is. And it's a reminder of the power of the platform. And it always fills me with gratitude, traveling across the country, meeting people who make our jobs possible. And we celebrate all of that today. 25 years in the making. Happy birthday to Fox News. And I could not imagine a better guest today than Bill Hammer, co-host of America's Newsroom on Fox News Channel every morning, 9 to 11 a.m., along with the lovely and talented Dana Perino. You can check out his podcast, Hammer Time, foxnewspodcast.com. Bill, always a pleasure. I'll see you soon on TV and back here on the radio, I hope. Thank you for your time, Guy. Have a great day and happy birthday to you, too. (laughs) All right, sir. And with that, the happy hour. We'll be right back after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Guy. Fox Nation presents podcasts. Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Benson Show Happy Hour. Thanks for tuning in. Well, we're going to land the plane on this Squid Game story. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can go back and listen to the podcast the last couple days. I've been telling you that we've been watching at our house Squid Game, which is the number one show on Netflix in dozens of countries. And as we read from the Wall Street Journal, is on track to be the highest watched, most watched show ever in the history of Netflix. And we finished it last night. So my overall review is this. The concept is very Black Mirror. If you're familiar with that show, dystopian, warped, weird. The scenario is Hunger Games. The level of violence at times is Kill Bill. And if that sounds palatable to you, then go for it because it really is compelling and addictive. Despite some of the plot holes, I won't get into them. A few things were annoying to me. They also appear to have maybe teed this thing up for a second season at the very end of the final episode. But I would say overall satisfied, and I can understand why it's a global hit. And producer Christine is apparently taking the plunge on Saturday. I'm curious to know how far she makes it. She's either going to get totally into it and binge the thing, or she is going to run away screaming in episode one or two and never look back. Perhaps we will... Test that and ask her on Monday. The happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show continues as soon as we come back. Please stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is The Guy Benson Show happy hour on this Thursday or Friday Eve as we call it here. Thank you for listening. Earlier today in our first hour between 3 and 4 p.m. Eastern Time, we welcome back our colleague, Bill Malugin, who not only has an award-winning 
head of hair. He's been all over the border crisis since the beginning, and his reporting has really intensified in recent weeks and months. We did a lot of coverage on the border crisis yesterday. We followed up earlier with Bill, who has more details from officials on the ground there. Here's part of the conversation with Bill Malugin. All right, let's uh, get a little bit more serious here, and let's start with a press conference earlier from 10 Republican governors, sort of an alliance of Republican governors, laying out a 10-point plan that they have all come together to support to try to control the border crisis. Clearly, they're trying to put on a united front against what they see as failures from the present federal administration and Joe Biden. What were the broad strokes of what we heard today from these GOP governors? So the main takeaway is what they're demanding from Joe Biden is, number one, they want the wall to be built again. They want Joe Biden to allow the wall to be built. As it stands right now, upwards of $5 million are being wasted every single day for the wall to not be built. American taxpayers are paying up to five mil a day just to let a bunch of metal bake out in the sun, essentially. Those contracts are signed. The contractors are being paid, but no work is being done. Another thing they want is they want the Remain in Mexico policy reinstated. You'll remember just a few weeks ago, a federal judge ordered that it has to be reinstated. Well, the Biden administration hasn't done that. They haven't reached out to Mexico. There's been no movement on that front. So they're saying that they're violating what that federal judge ruled. They want that to be taken care of. They also want Title 42 to be enforced with everybody. That is the uh, health rule where once somebody's encountered at the border, they get put on a bus and they get taken right back to Mexico because of COVID-19 concerns. Well, the, under the Trump administration, that was being applied to pretty much almost anybody who came across. Under the Biden administration, they're not doing it with family units, teenagers, kids, that sort of a thing. So that's why you see all those crazy images of family units just being mass released into the country, put on buses, and they're getting to fly wherever they want. Um, so that th- those are those are kind of a few of the key points. They also are demanding that uh, catch and release be ended, and that's kind of along the same lines. They believe what's enticing all of these migrants to come here to America right now is they know, and this is true because I've talked to a bunch of them over the past several months, they know if they can just get here and step foot on U.S. soil, they will have a very good chance of just being released into the country with an NTA or an NTR, a court date several years down the road because the, there's such a backlog right now and they can disappear into the shadows. And that is what is enticing so many of them to come. The governors say you have to end that immediately. You cannot give these migrants the prize before they go through the system. You have to take away the incentive to come here. Uh, They also pointed out that uh, they sent a letter to President Biden 16 days ago asking for a meeting in person on the border, uh, and they say President Biden never responded to them. In the meantime, I want to pick up on on one of the last points that you made. Here's a report from NBC News, and you've already basically confirmed what they're hearing as well. But just for the audience, let's listen together to Cut 9. After the dramatic surge of migrants into Del Rio, Texas last month, the Biden administration deported some to Haiti, but it released the majority, around 13,000, into the U.S. to wait for asylum cases. They're still coming now because of worsening economic conditions in South America, where some had settled, and the believe they might now be allowed to stay in the U.S. They believe they might now be allowed to stay in the U.S., and it's more than might. I mean, it's a very good chance, as you point out, Bill. And this is what we saw in the very early days of the border crisis. In the opening weeks and months of the Biden administration, there were a, a bunch of illegal immigrants entering the country, a huge uptick in 
illegal crossings, and you had some journalists go down there, even national journalists, for a couple days, and they were interviewing illegal immigrants who were saying, oh, yeah, we're coming here because Biden's going to let us stay. Some of them chanted his name. Some of them had Biden T-shirts. My full interview with Bill Malugin, along with the entire program today, is available, as always, on demand on the podcast, totally free of charge, at your fingertips, 24-7. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, another option, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a big day here at Fox News, 25 years in the making. Some reflections and stories from yours truly and team when we come back. It's straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you'll tune in tonight's special report. I'm on the panel with Brett Bayer and company in the 6 o'clock hour, so coming up in a little less than an hour from right now. And then also sticking around for Kennedy on Fox Business Network on her panel. I think it's game night, so that'll be a lot of fun. That's on Fox Business Network. So I will be on Fox News Radio, Fox News Channel, and Fox Business Network on the 25th anniversary of Fox News, which is pretty cool. We talked about this earlier with Bill Hemmer, and he had some great stories. Back from the competition side of things and then joining the winning team 16 years ago, I wanted to share a little bit of my story as well, if you wouldn't mind, because it's a big milestone for this network. And before we get to my story, we want to flash back to the very first moments on air for Fox News. The channel did not exist, and then it debuted on this date in 1996, and this is what it sounded like that morning. Listen. Welcome to Fox News Channel. This is Fox News Now. All the news you need in 15 minutes. That was obviously before Fox and Friends existed. I like that music at the very beginning. It's very 90s. Like, hard-hitting energy. And then the jingle. I don't know what happened to the jingle. For long-term viewers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? NBC has the chimes. Bum, bum, bum. ABC has ba 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 ba, and Fox News had bum ba bum bum ba bum, and they use that in all sorts of different little sounders and stingers, and then it sort of went away at some point on Fox News Channel. I kind of miss it actually. It was fun to hear that again. If you're one of the original OG fans, if you're one of the real ones, you know exactly the tune and you just heard it maybe you hadn't heard it in years but you're like oh yeah i feel like we should bring it back maybe i'll start a lobbying campaign to bring it back in any case that was 1996 my involvement with fox news began in 2002 so pretty early on i was in high school in northern new jersey just outside of new york city and one day i overheard in the hallway In my high school, a girl in my grade talking about how her dad worked at Fox News, I filed this away. I decided to reach out to him, just unsolicited, and pitch myself as a hardworking, ambitious intern. 
And I just wanted a shot. Could he help me at all get an interview for an internship? And it turned out that he was a pretty senior executive. I did not know that. And in fact, just this week, on Monday night, I had dinner with John Moody and his wife, which is pretty cool. We had a lot of memories to talk about. And he was somehow able to pull a string and get me an interview to become an intern. And I was accepted as an intern. And I worked then for a part of three different summers as an intern at Fox News, 2002, 2003, 2004. 02 and 03 was Hannity and Combs. That's another blast from the past. We all know Hannity, of course. Many of us remember Alan Combs. He was the guy that I actually helped the most in my internship duties, printing out research packets and that sort of thing for Alan. But it was that right versus left debate show, 9 p.m. Eastern time, Hannity and Combs, after O'Reilly and before Greta, if I'm remembering the schedule correctly at that time. In 2004, I was an intern for Fox's coverage of the Republican National Convention in New York City, which is one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. I worked double shifts. I volunteered to do that. And my deal was I will just work basically around the clock without sleeping for the most part if I'm allowed to take about two hours off to watch the speeches from the main stage during prime time. And they said, sure. So I remember very well. President Bush coming out to accept the nomination in 04, and I was sitting right next to Greta Van Susteren, right behind Sean Hannity, watching the president. It was a surreal moment for me as, you know, a kid. I was 19. I was in college. My goal as an intern was one day to make it on the air at Fox. And I actually tweeted earlier today and posted on my Instagram story, at Guy P. Benson, by the way, if you want to follow me at Guy P. Benson on both Twitter and Instagram, a vintage photo of young me in 2002. All right, so I'm a 17-year-old high school student. I've got the, uh, the dark red shirt with the maroon tie over it, very fashionable. I'm looking extremely serious. I've got the hair combed down to the front and then flipped up with some gel. That was a big, hot look in 02. And I'm sitting in between Sean and Alan, Hannity and Combs. And I remember thinking maybe one day I can make it on the air and become a part of this team. Flash forward, I've begun my career. It started in Chicago. I started doing some on-air appearances, not just at Fox Business and Fox News, but MSNBC, PBS, a few other places, even CNN. And at some point... In 2013, something shook loose, and I got the call from my agent that Fox News Channel had offered me a contract as a contributor. And it was honestly one of the most exciting days of my career or even my life. It is something that I had been aspiring to for a long time, and to actually get that phone call like it was happening, they were offering me money to be on the air at Fox News Channel. It was – I remember I was in New York City actually. And once I hung up, I played it very cool with my agent on the phone. Then I hung up and like I pumped my fists in the air and I actually sort of like ran down the street. I was so excited. So that was 2013. I cannot believe it's been eight years that I've been a member of the on-air team here as a contributor. It was just a few years ago, 2018, that they offered me 
a position here on the radio side, co-hosting a show, Benson and Harf, and now the Guy Benson show for the last couple of years. And I just have to say, I, I, I sometimes have to pinch myself. Right, Just the sentence that I said earlier this segment, I'm hosting a show on Fox News Radio. I'll be on with Brett Bayer on the panel, special report. I mean, that was like the holy grail for me, big leagues. Back then it was Brit Hume. I remember they had a different theme song. I remember the opening graphics with sort of the animated capital. And you would see the all-star panel. Right, It was Mort Kondracki. It was Fred Barnes. It was Mara Liason, who we still see around, and she comes on this show sometimes. And a handful of others, and of course, Dr. Krauthammer. It's like, could I somehow get on that panel one day? And the first time that they asked me to do it, I was, of course, extremely excited and nervous. I still get a little nervous to do special report. Honestly, I still do. And it's not because Brett is scary. It's just in my mind still this huge deal. So it's been a great privilege. I think I've been on almost every show at this network now over the course of these eight years. Gotten to know a lot of people, most of whom are still here. Some come and go. And sometimes, you know, it's the way the business works. And as Bill Hemmer alluded to earlier, it's not like this place has been just easy sailing every step of the way. There have been some real issues, right, and bumps in the road and painful chapters. I still wouldn't trade it for anything because the platform is incredibly forceful. The platform and the reach is influential. I think it is a real privilege and also a duty to use the platform responsibly, and I try. I strive to do that every day. And a lot of this is just a little bit of self-interested navel-gazing and, oh, you know, let's talk about my career. It's very easy for people to talk about themselves. But as I said to Bill Hammer earlier in the hour, I think if it's allowed, today would be the day. Because if you think about it, Fox News started in 1996 on this date. It was only six years later that I became an intern at Fox News in 2002. So out of the 25 years of Fox News existence, I've at least had some connection to it for 19 out of those 25 years. Now, there was a gap, right? There was a gap between 04, my internship, and then my first ever appearance on the air, which I believe was 2008, 2009, on Fox Business Network. I was living in Chicago. I was doing a radio show in Chicago. I was producing a show in Chicago. I was doing some writing for National Review and for Breitbart. At the time, Andrew Breitbart was still alive, and there was a scandal involving the governor in Illinois, Rod Blagojevich. We remember him, and I got an email out of the blue from a Fox Business Network producer and said, hey, you've got a show in Chicago. Would you be willing to come on and talk about Blagojevich? I said, absolutely. Where do I need to be? When? And that was, I want to say, 09, and from that point forward, it was sort of off to the races and 2010, I moved to D.C., and I've been here ever since, and that really helped smooth the transition into being a more regular guest and then a few years after that, a contributor. I am so grateful to a lot of people in my little corner of this big behemoth in the news industry, right? To the extent that this place has been successful, I would say that I have contributed just a little tiny amount to that success.
A lot of other people are much more responsible for it, but I still own some of that responsibility, and I am really proud of it. And as I said, grateful. I'm grateful to the executives and the bosses here who saw fit to hire me, even as an intern back in the day and then on air, which really made my career in those early days, who entrust me to this radio show every day. The bookers, producers, and anchors who have me on their show on the TV side, our staff here at the radio show, our bosses here at Fox News Radio, everyone who makes this place tick deserves a lot of credit because you don't get to be number one and then stay number one for two decades by accident. It takes a lot of hard work from a lot of people using a lot of their different talents in different ways. And to any extent that I can contribute to that overall success, it's an honor every day. And my gratitude, first and foremost, is extended to all of you. And I know I speak on behalf of everyone here at Fox News when I thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart for listening, for watching, for logging on, for streaming. Without you, without your viewership and listenership, Without your loyalty, this would not happen. We wouldn't have a network, let alone a dominant number one network. That is you. We're forward-facing, but we serve you. And after 25 years, we cannot thank you enough. Let's make it 25 more. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Happy birthday, Fox News. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you here for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show tomorrow. Good night from D.C. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.